AFIO Now is presented by Northwest Financial Advisors, where our world revolves around you. Hello, everyone. This is Jim Hughes with AFIO Now. We are a program of recorded interviews with former senior U.S. intelligence officers and those who write about them. Today, we're very privileged to have back again Shane Harris. Shane is a senior staff uh, writer for the Washington Post, and he's been covering uh, intelligence and national security affairs for over 20 years. He's been in the program twice already to talk to us about Ukraine, and I'm very pleased to have him back today to talk about the fast-breaking events that have been developing over the last couple of weeks in both Ukraine and Russia. Shane, welcome back to Afio Now. Thanks, Jim. It's always nice to talk to you, and I appreciate you having me back. Well, Shane, the Russian cauldron is bubbling again. Mm. I think it's very timely for us to talk about it once more. How badly has the Prigozhin mutiny uh, destabilized the Putin regime? I, I think quite significantly, actually. Um, and and I think that not because, you know, I believe that Vladimir Putin, for all of his public appearances in the past couple of weeks where he's being photographed in the streets, taking selfies with his you know, jubilant supporters, um, has any real reality to it. I mean, I think this is somebody actually quite the opposite. He is trying to project very hard the idea that he is still there. He is still in command. He still has support. Um, but we can simply just, I think, look at the facts as they played out in such extraordinary fashion a couple of weeks ago. Ago, where Evgeny Prigozhin, you know, the head of the Wagner forces and, you know, ostensibly an ally of Vladimir Putin, though he was quite an antagonist of the military, you know, got within 120 miles of Moscow. Uh, and there were real questions and indications about whether or not the Russian military protecting the capital was capable of repelling those forces or even if they would follow an order to attack them. So I don't think anything fundamentally has changed in the vulnerabilities that Prigozhin's, you know, near assault on Moscow demonstrated, you know, the, that he could get close, that he could even engage Russian forces, as he did in some cases, that he could go in and take over the military district headquarters in Rostov-on-Don in southern Russia, which is the nerve center of the entire Russian military operation uh, in Ukraine. And he did that essentially without firing a shot and really faced no opposition. So all of those fundamental weaknesses in Putin's control and, and arguably, you know, support from within the military, I think are still there, uh, even if he's trying to project an image that everything is fine now because I formed this truce with Evgeny Prigozhin, who is now going to leave Russia with his troops and go to Belarus. And we can talk about that because he's apparently not in Belarus. <laughs> and where in the world is Evgeny Prigozhin is an interesting question. But no, I think it's been tremendously destabilizing. And and I, I thought at the time that we saw this, that, that first kind of initial 36 hour period of just extraordinary activity, you know, I had said that we were I sort of felt like we were watching act one of a long play and we're sort of in an intermission right now where behind the scenes, you know, the scenery is being changed. People are changing costumes. You know, something is happening ready for act two. And I think that's still where we are right now. Shane, are there other indi indications of instability inside Russia? Yeah, I mean, I think the fact that you have, you know, for instance, there is this top general, well, formerly more senior general Srovikin, 
who it's not clear whether he has been arrested or detained. This is somebody who uh, we've reported and other news outlets have as well, uh, was somebody who Prigozhin may have been in contact with before he launched this rebellion and believed that Sirovikin and maybe others in the Russian military establishment uh, may have supported him in, in this and that perhaps uh, the Russian leadership found out about this and kind of put a stop to that. People will remember Sirovikin is this very kind of hulking general with a bald head who gave this video address directly to Prigozhin and the Wagner forces in the midst of the chaos that kind of looked like a hostage video, really. It looked like he was being compelled to say to them, you know, stand down, don't do this. Um, he really hasn't been accounted for since uh, all of that happened a few weeks ago. So there's a real question with that about whether or not I think Putin is going through and trying to maybe quietly eliminate opposition within the senior ranks of the Russian military. Um, that would be a clear sign, I think, you know, it, that there was real instability um, at the top. Interestingly, we you know we haven't seen, you know, public protests playing out. We've never really seen that through the course of the war Anyway, um, you know, the, the, the public, particularly in the cabinet in Moscow and St. Petersburg, I think to a lot of Russians, the war still feels kind of distant. Um, but I do think that, like, you know, you can kind of try to read between the lines a little bit of what we're seeing with uh, the, the, the Sarovikin or Putin trying to protect his image of strength that tells you that actually, no, things really aren't as stable as Putin might like you to believe. Jane, uh, what impact has this had on the Russian military and its leadership? So that is a great question that I still don't know if we know the answer to. I mean, I think the presumption going in, and even before the rebellion, you know, the Wagner forces were have been some of the most capable fighting forces in the war and probably came to the highest level of prominence for, for people in the West and maybe even in Russia, too. And the way that they were essential to Russia's operations in the city of Bakhmut, which is this city in the east that wasn't so much of strategic importance to Russia or Ukraine, but became this just potent political symbol and this incredible grudge match that played out for months and months and months and saw some of the bloodiest fighting for both sides in the war. Wagner forces were instrumental in taking Bakhmut. And what was interesting was that as soon as Evgeny Prigozhin took it and kind of declared victory, he and his men packed up and left. Uh, and it's important to note that moment because throughout that battle is when Prigozhin was going on Telegram, which is his kind of preferred channel of communication, and just absolutely lambasting the Russian military leadership. General Gerasimov, who is their head of their general staff, Sergei Shoigu, who is their defense minister, and essentially saying uh, the military is incompetent, they're not supporting my forces. Towards the end, you know, he even went so far as to say that the justification for the war in Ukraine that Putin and others have been telling the Russian people was false uh, and suggesting that Putin was somehow misled by these top men into the war. So there was a real question of when the battle with Bakhmut was finished and Prigozhin took his forces out, would that then leave the Russian military in the position of having, you know, their best men off the battlefield? And that's even more of a, of a, of a potent question now, I think, that uh, we presume that Wagner, uh, at least under the leadership of Prigozhin, will not be rejoining the fight in Ukraine anytime soon. So we didn't have to look at, you know, well, what what is the Russian military capability right now? And and while, you know, throughout the course of the, course of the war, uh, I think on an offensive front, they've 
failed pretty spectacularly. They didn't meet any of their initial aims from the invasion of more than a year ago, but they have proven really good at holding a defensive line. And they've now got one, you know, in the east of the country that essentially, you know, is, you know, this eastern flank now in the war. And the counteroffensive with Ukraine has begun and it's making, you know, incremental gains, but it's very slow going. So I, I say all this as a context of saying I don't know whether or not the Wagner forces kind of provide an offensive capability that maybe now be lost for the Russian military. But the Russian military has proven very good at defensive uh, fortifications. And that's right now what the Ukrainians are, are trying to break through. And I think that because it seems like it's maybe not going as fast as people had anticipated, although Ukrainian officials are very quick to say, and they have to us in interviews as well, we never said this would go fast. It was always going to be slow. That's creating an incentive now for, I think, the West to provide stronger, more powerful weapons. Uh, and we saw actually today, uh, Friday, July 7th, the Biden administration announcing that it was going to approve uh, cluster munitions for Ukraine, which was a very controversial move because these are, are, are very... Uh, uh, dangerous and controversial weapons that a lot of countries won't even allow on the battlefield. Um, so, you know, I think the real threat ultimately to the Russian military might be more about morale. And and I think that, you know, when Prigozhin was heading towards Moscow, I mean, I was talking to intelligence officials who were questioning whether or not Russian troops would even follow an order to fire on them and whether they would even try to defend the capital. We don't know. It didn't come to that. But I think that, too, reveals some serious morale issues uh, and some readiness issues in the Russian military um, that are certainly not going to be improved uh, by recent events. How destabilizing do you think uh, the Wagner presence will be in Belarus? Well, if they end up there, um, it's it, it, it potentially could be for a few reasons, right? I mean, one would be that it amasses a, a fairly effective fighting force on the northern border with Ukraine, right? That they haven't, Ukraine really hasn't had to worry so much, or they haven't worried so much about Russian forces coming down from Belarus. Um, if, you, if Wagner forces are there in Belarus, then that might be something that they have to worry about. And it's still a big if, because by last reports, including, you know, in the Post this morning, Evgeny Prigozhin is jetting around Russia. He hasn't seemingly decamped to Belarus where he was supposed to be in this kind of quiet exile. Um, that was the terms of the truce that President Lukashenko and Belarus uh, claimed that he had worked out between Putin and Prigozhin. Um, it was also always a question, too, of how many Wagner forces would actually go to Belarus. Were we talking maybe 5,000, 10,000, more than that? Uh, we don't really know. There are some of them presumably still in Russia, uh, and there's a lot in Africa. Um, I could also see it being destabilizing in another maybe interesting way that if, if Wagner developed a presence in Belarus, that is arguably something that is advantageous to the president of Belarus, who, while he normally, Lukashenko, has been kind of this second fiddle, almost kind of puppet uh, to Putin and certainly a subordinate, of his. In the past couple of weeks, we've seen him interestingly flexing a muscle. Um, you know, he notably came out and gave this public address where he told his version of events of how that 36 hour period unfolded, in which he really kind of casts himself uh, as this master diplomat who stepped in and assuaged Putin that no, you should try to call Prigozhin. And Putin, according to Lukashenko, was saying, oh, but I can't find his phone number and he won't return my calls. I mean, really kind of portraying Putin as sort of 
weak uh, and dependent on Lukashenko, not the other way around for this. And I just wondered if, you know, if if Wagner decided to make Belarus home base, does that give Lukashenko some kind of extra card that he can play? Not to suggest that he wants to go to war with Russia, but it moves things a little bit in his direction and then becomes something that Ukraine would have to worry about if that force were to really start amassing in great strength to the north. Shane, do you think uh, Putin will be able to absorb other aspects of uh, Prigozhin's empire, particularly his foreign influence in places like Africa? I think that's going to be very hard to do, actually. And, you know, in Prigozhin's reach in Africa, I mean, it's really quite extraordinary. I mean, we've seen from recent reporting, including, you know, leaked intelligence documents that I and my colleagues have reported on the paper, Prigozhin really has built a kind of empire, or is at least in the process of doing it in Africa. And that might be, I don't want to overstate this, but he has security contracts with many governments there where he's providing protection to the leaders in those countries that their militaries can't, or he's augmenting those forces. And he's doing it in exchange for things like access to mineral rights and gold. I mean, he's building up assets, you know, he that we would traditionally associate with something more like a nation state, maybe even than a company. And, you know, Putin is having a hard time affecting change in Ukraine. I don't know how he extends his influence into Africa and starts to make demands of, of those countries that do have contracts with Prigozhin's company. And I think that for Prigozhin, I mean, one potential out for him would be to sort of relocate to Africa, oversee his forces there, you know, bide his time, continue building up strength in a place where I would think that Putin would just find it pretty hard to extend a reach and influence him. You know, and one Ukrainian official I, I talked to fairly often has noted that they have not seen Wagner bringing up those forces from Africa. Prigozhin has basically said, I'm not bringing up my fighters that I have in my business already in these other countries. So he's been going through Russia and trying to empty out the prisons to find people to basically, you know, turn into cannon fodder in some cases. So Prigozhin has a, a deep vested interest, I think, in maintaining those ties in Africa and maintaining that presence. Uh, and I think that, that Putin's going to find it very difficult uh, to certainly to absorb them. He's finding it difficult to just absorb the Wagner forces in, in Ukraine right now. Shane, as you well know, um, yesterday's post carried a, a front page article with renewed threats by some fairly senior uh, Russian officials uh, with the use of uh, tactical nuclear weapons. Obviously, we can never ignore those threats, but how seriously do you think we need to, uh, to take those? I think take them seriously, but, you know, officials I've talked to for the past year now really take a different view about the potential use of nuclear weapons than they were in the first one to three months, let's say, of the war, where I think people were genuinely very concerned that Putin could quickly escalate to the use of tactical nuclear weapons. There was never any, I think, fear that he would use strategic nuclear weapons. Um, and it seems that at this point, most officials I talk to think that, you know, he basically he wouldn't do it, that he's calculated that 
the consequences he would suffer from that are, are too severe uh, uh, to, 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 to try using one of those on the battlefield, or certainly in a way that would kill many, many people, uh, like potentially on a city, for instance. Um, you know, we don't exactly know what it is that U.S. officials and others have told Putin will happen if he were to use one of those weapons. But we do know that they have delivered a message uh, a number of times, including through people like Bill Burns, who's been kind of a key emissary throughout this entire war, the CIA director, where they have, you know, according to our reporting, made clear to the Russians what those consequences will be. I don't know, but I would suspect to some degree they have told them, look, I mean, you know, there will be a military response and it will be significant if you were to do this. I can't imagine that that wouldn't be the implicit threat, if not the explicit one. There's also been reporting in the past few days, uh, notably in, in the Financial Times, that Xi Jinping, you know, the leader of China, said to Vladimir Putin, if you use nuclear weapons, you're going to lose support from Beijing. So I think that what we've seen now is that you know, while that remains, the use of nuclear weapons by Russia remains a scenario that has to be considered. I think most people feel the likelihood of it is just very low right now. I mean, what, what Putin is trying to do here is, you know, in his long term is to is absorb Ukraine. That's obviously not going to happen right now. But he's also trying to just hold on to power. And and I think that you know, if he were to use a weapon like that and there were an overwhelming military response by NATO, I mean, I think you can imagine uh, people in Russia moving very quickly to remove Putin. And, and I should say, too, the calculus that people in the intelligence community I've talked to of what would motivate him to use a nuclear weapon would be that if he felt that his hold on power were nearly at the breaking point that, you know, that that Ukraine was going to move into Crimea and take Crimea and that the, and that the military simply wouldn't stand for this and would demand that he be removed. We're not there yet. And I think that, you know, it, it's, it's a low likelihood. And what does this all mean for NATO? Of course, yeah. there is going to be a NATO summit next week in Vilnius. Could be a set of very interesting conversations. Yeah, I think so. And I think that, you know, it's I think what you're going to probably see uh, out of the summit is a, a lot of uh, uh, public relations in an attempt to lower expectations and, and hopefully, you know, um, give Ukraine a way to, you know, maybe save face a bit here. Because while they have been very clear, uh, even in recent days, that what they want to see is President Zelensky, you know, and the Secretary General of NATO standing on a stage together and saying Ukraine will now join NATO, that's almost certainly not going to happen. And that, you know, NATO's position has been for, for 15 years now that, you know, eventually Ukraine will join NATO. And it's just kind of this, you, just, you put it off. I don't think any of the, you know, the major NATO powers expect or want to come out of the Vilnius summit with a commitment to immediately uh, admit Ukraine to NATO. I mean, the, the, the immediate obvious reason for that would be that if suddenly, like, if we waved a wand and Ukraine were a member of NATO today, well, NATO would be a war with Russia because they'd be attacking a NATO member. Um, <clears throat> there's going to be much more, I think, of a focus on security guarantees. And, and, and while people don't like to talk about this, about some kind of negotiations for ceasefire, which have been you know, looming in the background for a long time. And, and I think um, it's politically something that's very hard for President Zelensky to talk about. But we understand from our reporting is something that he is 
actively planning for. Um, so I think probably, you know, NATO summit will be a bit of a letdown for Ukraine. At the same time, I don't think it's in President Zelensky's interest to portray that summit as him being shunned by NATO uh, or having his hopes dashed or him being unable to deliver. I have a feeling everyone's going to, you know, try and find some sort of equilibrium here. And maybe what you'll see is, you know, Stoltenberg and Zelensky on a stage talking about their commitment to Ukraine eventually joining NATO. But I would be really surprised if they came out with a, a plan to do that in the near future. Shane, we discussed this a bit off camera and you touched on it briefly at the beginning of your remarks. But um, one really gets the impression that there's a lot more going on under the surface. And this is being revealed to us incrementally. Any final thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, I think that this is so much of the case of reporting on on a war is that it, it, there is a fog to it. There's a, there's a reason that we use that metaphor. Um, Putin has done a very good job, I will say, of information control within Russia. Um, uh, certainly he is projecting one kind of image. And if he wanted to make a greater show of force uh, about rounding up generals or people who were against him, he could do that. But he seems to be keeping it very quiet if he is doing that, I think, because he doesn't want to portray weakness. He doesn't want to give people the idea that there is a problem here in the upper ranks uh, of his with his leadership. So there's certainly that, um, you know, and the Ukrainians, I think, have been you know consistently trying to portray, you know, this war as one that is ultimately all about the liberation of Ukraine. Uh, and while that might be a long term goal, I think in the short term, it's not necessarily feasible, um, given that the Ukrainians just don't have enough firepower and enough people to you know, retake Crimea and retake the eastern part of the country. At least that's the analysis, I should say. They could surprise all of us, by the way, because Ukraine, I will say, has, has been very good at beating expectations. Uh, since the war began last year. Um, but so much of this is about managing public expectations, about the negotiations that have been ongoing for military support to Ukraine, about the pressure that they've been putting on the Biden administration for more weapons, about the Biden administration sometimes quietly fuming when they feel that Ukraine is asking for too much and is not being grateful enough. Um, it's been a fascinating aspect to this war, you know, punctuated by things by like secret visits by the CIA director to Kiev, where he is, I should say, from all my reporting, enthusiastically received. I mean, the Ukrainians love Bill Burns. <laughs> that is that is one thing that that is is, is true, uh, uh, and they've kind of seen him as a trusted figure. There's just a lot that we learn as time goes on about how things have been playing out behind the scenes. That that Bill Burns' last trip to Kiev actually was a notable example of this, where, as we reported, uh, he met with Ukrainian officials where they kind of laid out their strategy for this counteroffensive they're in, which was basically to make enough territorial gains that they would then force Putin to basically you know, not capitulate, but to open ceasefire negotiations with Moscow by the end of the year. I mean, the idea here would be that Ukraine takes enough territory by the fall. It moves its artillery and missile systems up to the boundary of Crimea, pushes further in eastern Ukraine and opens negotiations with Moscow. That's a fairly extraordinarily ambitious plan. And it is not necessarily one that lines up with what Ukrainians have been saying for a long time, which was, you know, we're only settling for total victory. 
they have a plan here that doesn't envision total victory, at least right now. So those things are, are gradually coming out uh, through reporting. And I think that we're all kind of getting to a place publicly and understanding that, you know, the United States and, and even Ukraine is trying to envision a moment in which at least the fighting as it's happening now, the intensity of it stops. That leaves unanswered the question about what about the territorial integrity of Ukraine? What about security guarantees? But I think that these next few months are kind of pivotal because they're setting the next stage up for something that starts to look like an end game in Ukraine. Well, this has been a very thoughtful and uh, timely uh, update on the situation in Russia and Ukraine. I have a feeling we may be talking again fairly soon. I'd like to thank uh, both Shane Harris and The Washington Post uh, for appearing again on our program today. Thanks, Jim. It was really nice to talk to you.